in the ESV, it says, For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he sparks, sparks. Speaks when he sparks. When he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So, praise God, God is in charge. Amen? It's a good thing he's in control. It's a good thing that he is a part of this. It's a good thing that he's working with us and that he is watching, that he is building. Amen? It's not just us. It's not just us going through the labor, going through the toil. It's him. It's he and us in partnership. Amen. Let's stand. We will worship. Then we shall proceed. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Lord, that you lead us and guide us this morning into all truth. And that through this, Father, you receive all glory, all honor, all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Man up. That song is full, full of truth. Glory to God. I mean, just listening to those words, singing those words is a testimony of what he's done for us. Glory to God. Why don't you shake at least two hands and don't make it more than four. Greet one another. Say good morning. Try not to wander too far away. It is my great pleasure, my great honor. Uh, I, I am not speaking today, as you can tell. You can tell whenever I have a microphone in my hand, I'm not doing the speaking today. But uh, it's been on my heart, been on uh, Buddy Shackley's heart. He has a word to share, and he's been telling me about it. I'm excited to hear it. So let's give a warm welcome to Buddy Shackley. Did it work? Nice. All right. Uh, so the pumpkin palooza. That's exciting. You saw my daughter in there, Ana Lucia, at the pie eating contest. If I remember correctly, she won. Yeah. Her older brother looked at her and told everybody, never get into a pie eating contest with an orphan. Mark views it as his ministry to help her. (laughs) God is is glorious, and he's doing some wonderful things in the world today. This this message has been on my heart. This is really ringing. This message has been on my heart uh, for almost a year now. We taught a lot of it at camp. Camp's theme this year was revealing the glory of God. And one of the days, one of the evenings, I think I talked about understanding, uh, understanding the truth. So I'm really nervous. I'm going to try to get through the first couple of slides and then we'll get rolling. Um, what's, 
What's the difference between understanding and truth? That's something that's kind of been rattling around in my head a little bit. And you ask yourself, is that even important to know the difference between truth and understanding? So I want to give you a couple of examples, okay? The first one, Jesus came up to the demoniac, right? And the demoniac had legions of devils in him. And Jesus cast the devils out. And these pigs were possessed by the devils, and they ran into the lake and died. That's all truth, right? We know that's truth. But do you understand why the devils went into the pigs? Yeah, Jesus needed a new species because all the cats were already full of devils. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I knew somebody I knew there were some people would understand that. Here's another one. Come up here, Pastor Greg. This has been going through my head as I've been thinking about this sermon for months, okay? And I knew I was going to speak about understanding uh, in August when you and I started talking about this, that I would speak in September about understanding. Something that popped into my head one morning when I was meditating on this. And the question was this, what is the truth? Which man is more handsome? And the thoughts that started popping into my head were things like this. The West Virginia of Minnesota or Minnesota? Or Minnesota. Men with hair, you're out of luck, right? We got nothing. Uh, unless you're counting other body parts, in which case we have varying degrees to offer. <laughs> Do you like a more full-figured man? If you like bone thin, we got nothing, right? Uh, men in skirts? <laughs> or the whole T-Rex thing of big heads and short arms, that's me, right? <laughs> God knows the truth. God knows the truth. And there, I, the truth is important, but understanding the truth is more important. Why is understanding different than truth, and why is it important? Pastor Dan Dennison planted this church quite a while ago. And when Susanna and I started coming to the church, he was still the pastor. And he had a way of summing up truth with little phrases that he'd just repeat over and over and over again. And one of them that are relevant to today's message is, you don't know it if your life doesn't show it. You can know the words, but you don't actually know it if your life doesn't show it. Or he missed it by 18 inches. The difference between his head and his heart. Right? For those of you who've been around a while, you've heard that. Let's go to the next one. I am not going to turn around once and look. Uh, if it seems like I'm talking about something different than what's behind me, just wave a hand, okay? We'll, we'll figure it out. This is a picture of Sir Isaac Newton. I'm a scientist, so I think in terms of scientific stuff. God talks to me that way and illustrates things, so I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton was probably the most important scientist between the Greeks and Einstein. He, this picture captures the, the moment when the apple fell, and, he, and it maybe hit him on the head. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, and he started thinking about 
gravity and he started thinking about the mechanics of motion, how things move. Uh, who's familiar with the term calculus? Show of hands. Okay, lots of people. The term. The term. Okay. <laughs> Who knows what calculus is? There's a couple of people, hand, well, a lot less hands. Who understands calculus? Right? See, there's a difference between knowing and understanding. Sir Isaac Newton gave us calculus. Uh, in high school, Jessica was taking her first run at calculus. And so the term ended, and I came up and talked to her. And I was expecting Jessica to say, you know, how's it going? And she's going to say, Dad, I loved calculus. This made so much sense to me. Because that's the way I was. When I took calculus, it was the easiest class I took. I just got it. This, this stuff made sense to me, right? I assumed that my daughter would be in the same place. <laughs> She's like, Dad, I don't have a clue. It's utterly and totally incomprehensible to me. <laughs> she could get the right answers. I mean, she could muddle through the homework, but it didn't, she didn't get it. So I took one hour and I explained to her that what calculus was, it was the math that Newton figured out to be able to relate position and speed and acceleration, right? Because those are all changing, it was hard to get math that would do that. And so, after explaining that to her, she, she just, I mean, boom. Next time she took it, because she did have to repeat it, the next time she took it, <laughs> she totally got it. Because we intuitively understand, well, let me step back. I drive a Subaru, okay? Some of you have mocked me because of that. <laughs> And, and I'm merging onto the freeway, and traffic might be fast, and there's a little gap, and I punch the accelerator, and the tachometer goes up to the red line, and the little four cylinders are screaming, and I feel nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't change speed at all. It's, it's more of an auditory experience. <laughs> But we've all been in cars where you punch it, and, and you know that you're accelerating. I hear you. And, <laughs> and as you're accelerating, you know that your velocity is changing. And as your velocity is changing, you know that your position is changing. Newton gave us the math that explains that to us. Next one, Einstein. Here's another example of how understanding can be limited. Einstein is the most important scientist of the last 150 years. Uh, Newton gave us math that explained all the stuff we can see. Baseballs, bullets, you can't see them, but it's fit. planetary motion, uh, cars, velocities, those kinds of things. Einstein gave us understanding into the stuff we can't see, the stuff of atoms, quantum mechanics. His breakthrough was the understanding about the stuff that makes the stuff, that is the stuff of atoms, okay? And that was critically important to our way of life because it's the things of telecommunications, electronics, advanced healthcare, the way we do commerce. I mean, he transformed the world with what he understood. I have no clue. <laughs> Never did figure it out. 
Within 10 to 15 years, he was arguing against the people that were advancing his theory. You can't do with that what you're doing with what I wrote. He was, he just could, he'd gotten us so far ahead, a breakthrough. But then people took it past that and he couldn't follow them. Sometimes that sounds to me like the revivals that God's given us over the years. So what does God have to say about understanding spiritual truths? 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A truth can be laid in front of us, and yet we don't understand it. When we try to reason out the things of the Spirit, we often fall short of understanding. We just miss it. Let me illustrate this with the apostles, okay? I did this study last winter. I didn't start out studying this. I was just reading Luke. As I read Luke, something started popping out to me about understanding. But first, before I start talking about that, I want to give you the key to understand what's going on here. So on the left side, we're going to have what God and Jesus are saying. On the right side, we're going to have the apostles' response to the situation. But to understand the apostles' response, you have to understand this. They were rightly understanding the scriptures. It was the time for the Messiah to come. They understood that truth. But they completely misunderstood the law and the prophets, with respect to what he was going to do. Right? They thought that the Messiah was going to come, establish the kingdom of David again, that Israel was going to become an important political entity in the world again. They were going to throw off Roman rule. Just remember that. That's the key to understanding this really goofy story. Okay. So... Let's start at the transfiguration because this essentially starts the story. Jesus has gone up onto a mountain, and and we're in Luke. You can follow along. I've got the numbers up there so you know that I'm not making it up. And I've pulled out the bits and pieces that are this story of the Passover, essentially. Okay? There's other things that account that occur in the, in the, in the, as we're working through these chapters, but this is the story of the Passover. So the transfiguration, he's up on a mountain praying, and Moses and Elijah show up, and it says there right at the bottom of that verse that Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of this departure, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're talking together about the events that are going to transpire in Jerusalem. And the apostles, the disciples, because they're people like us, are sound asleep on the mountain, okay? (laughs) They're normal people. And Peter wakes up, and because he's Peter, he's a man of action. (laughs) Boy, it would be very, very good if we built three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love this. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible not knowing what he said. Then it goes back to God again, right? And so we should be on the lower left. And God speaks out of the cloud. 
This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You know it's dire when God actually has to speak in an auditory manner, saying, listen to him. This is important. It's actually kind of funny. Those of you who have teenage kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? You can look directly at them, and you can say something to them in English. (laughs) And they look at you, and they say yes. And then a completely different outcome occurs. And you're like, how did that happen? See, this is what God's doing. He's saying, listen to me, with an exclamation exclamation mark. Okay, so the story continues. They come down off of the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9.43. And Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. He just told you the plot, right? This is the plot of the Passover. Not crystal clear, but you got to get an inkling that something bad's going to happen when he says, delivered into the hands of men. So then look at how the apostles respond. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. And at the bottom. So not having a clue what was being said, or what was going on, or what the plot was, they start an argument about who's going to be the greatest amongst them. Okay, Luke 9.51. So when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So now they're they're a little bit closer to the Passover. And now, because this is a huge festival, a big feast in Jerusalem, Jewish people from around the world are now going to go into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at the temple, right? And so Jesus, with his party, they're heading to Jerusalem. And as they approach a Samaritan village, Jesus sent someone ahead to find some, a place to lodge in the Samaritan village. But recognizing that this party was going to Jerusalem, the Samaritan said, you can't stop here. So the apostles, completely understanding the heart of God, said, Jesus, let us call down fire from heaven and destroy this village. <laughs> So Jesus had to turn around and rebuke them. So Luke 18.31, we jump way ahead, but they're still now on their way to Jerusalem, right? Big gap occurred in Luke, but, but they're on their way to Jerusalem. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And the, and the disciples, they look at that, and they're like, Yeah, right? The kingdom is going to be established. All these great... I mean, that's what they're hearing when he says that. And Jesus translates it for them accurately. You can't get any more precise than this. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will all kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Is there a clearer articulation of the plot than that? Okay? I mean, that is as precise as it can get. So how did the apostles respond? This is the next verse. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So let's jump ahead to Luke 22, 14. And now we're at the Last Supper, the Passover. This is... 
the most significant exercise uh, performance. Uh, this is the most significant Passover feast that has occurred since Moses did it the first time. Because in this Passover, Jesus is explaining it to them. All these things that you have done all these years, the way you, the way you celebrate the Passover feast, he's now interpreting the elements of it. And we often read this. You know, there's 12 apostles across the back of the table and a big loaf of bread in the middle and a glass of wine, right? This is how it's represented. And Jesus breaks off big chunks of Hawaiian kind of bread, right? And, and, and passes those chunks around, and there's this glass, and he passes this glass around. And that's not what happened. Because in the Passover, the way Jewish people celebrate the Passover, there are three pieces of bread. And these are pieces of matzah bread. And the way the matzah bread is made, and the way it's baked, it has stripes on it. And that matzah bread is pierced with holes in the process. And when it says he took the piece of bread, he took the middle piece of bread because there's three pieces. And Jewish people have always thought that that represented Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Messianic Jews understand it to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he took the piece that represented him and he broke it. This is my body. He's interpreting something that they've always done and not understood. And there's multiple cups of wine in this ceremony. And he took the cup from the portion of the ceremony and he said, this cup in the ceremony is my blood. And he poured it out. Going back to the bread, Orthodox Jews, they'll take that middle piece, they'll wrap it in a piece of cloth after the Passover, and they'll put it in a drawer. And when they have a moment of need, they will take it out, they'll break off a piece, and they'll say, in the name this represents, and they'll eat it. So having interpreted and explained the greatest Passover dinner to ever occur. Let's see how the disciples responded. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. <laughs> it's almost like they're not in the same play, right? This is the only verse I'm taking out of, out of John. Uh, it, it occurs right in the middle of the Passover dinner. And Jesus says from this time forward, I will not be showing myself to men. And Judas, not Iscariot, says, what then has happened that you will not disclose yourself to the world? He's still... I mean, okay, maybe this is the first inkling for him that the plot is different than what he thought the plot was. He doesn't know what the plot is, but it might be different than what he thought it was. And you know something? That's where I find myself today, this year. There's a lot of pieces to the plot that I think I understand really, really well. And I'm starting to see it's different than what I thought it was. 
So going back to Luke, chapter 24, the crucifixion is complete. It's the morning after the Sabbath, and the ladies are heading out to the tomb. And when they got there, they didn't find Jesus. They were going to find Jesus. This is the third day, remember? Remember the plot. He's going to rise on the third day. They're going out there to find him. And what they find is two people standing there. What? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. And verse 8 says, and they remembered these words. It doesn't say they understood them. It says that they remembered them. He did say that. And then they went back to the disciples and bore witness that Jesus was not in the tomb. And the disciples' response was, but these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So now we're at the end of the Passover festival. We're on the road to Emmaus. We all know this story. But really what's going on here is, is having assembled from around the world in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the parties that came in are now going home to the places they will be from, right? And two guys are walking down the street and Jesus walks up to them and he's, he's, he's not revealing himself to them, but he's explaining. And they're, and they're doing what people do, right? They're talking about the sports page. Or they're talking about the tabloids, if you're into the celebrity kind of thing. Or they're talking about the next presidential election, and they're saying, and I think this is the best example, because we're all kind of like, what on earth are we going to do this year? And they're like, what on earth are we going to do with this? We thought that it was going to play out a certain way. And it didn't. The people who thought and you know, were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, they're, they're hiding. They're in fear for their lives. We don't understand this at all. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's what they say to Jesus. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They're using the right words. But they're not understanding what the words meant. It happened. And they didn't recognize that it had happened. So Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe of all the prophets have spoken. What is it? What was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to him, to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Explaining yet again. I actually wonder if those two guys at that point started to understand. But they did turn around and head back to Jerusalem to find the eleven. And I don't know if they went back to find the 11 because they were like, wow, we just saw Jesus. He's alive. Or if they went back to say, we just found Jesus. He's alive. And everything he said was true. And I think it was the former. It was they were excited that they had seen Jesus. He was alive. 
And so when they told the disciples, I think that's Luke 24, 32. My font is about two on this page. Uh, they ran in there and said, as a second testimony now, we've seen Jesus alive. And what was the apostles' response? They were talking about these things, Jesus himself, and, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were he was a spirit. They still are not in the same story that Jesus is in. Jumping ahead to Acts 1. Acts 1, for the first few verses, is kind of a summation of the end of Luke. He's kind of recapping as he he writes his second book. Starting in verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. So what we just described. By many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I love verse 6. I love verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom? (laughs) It's all they knew. It's the way they were raised. It was what was in their head. It was their frame of reference. They were just seeing, trying to interpret things through what they had been taught their whole life. Jesus' response, it's not for you to know the time or the epochs, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth, from Solon Springs all the way to Prescott. That's what he's talking about right there. The upper room, Luke twenty four thirty eight, and he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do you doubt why do doubts arise in your hearts? So this is now going to the very, very end of the story. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the epicenter. That's the start of a great church. I said that sometimes I think I don't understand the plot today. And I'm really starting to get an inkling that I don't. And you'll say, well, with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, they understood all these things that Jesus said, and we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? So we should understand everything. Then why are there 3,500 denominations? If we understood everything the way God understood it, we would not be fighting about doctrine. They were in the upper room. 
immediately after the ascension. There's a difference between obeying and listening. God said, listen to him. They were obedient in all the things they did. He sent out 12 and they healed the sick. He sent out 70 and they healed the sick. And they called down fire on the city. So now they're obediently in the upper room waiting for what God has given to them, what Jesus had promised them, right? They're waiting obediently. And Pentecost fell. And then this motley crew of misunderstanding screw-ups just changed. They were transformed into something completely different. This is where Peter now all of a sudden can stand up and preach sermons that befuddle the Pharisees, the keepers of the law. How can this unlearned fisherman teach this this way? With Jesus had established and empowered with the baptism of the Holy Spirit a church. And he said exactly what it was going to be. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And when it's come near to you, these are the things you're going to see. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to cleanse those who have leprosy. You're going to drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Now, I'm an encourager, okay? It's my gift. Some of you may not realize that. There's a lot of intensity and passion that comes through these eyes, and I can freak out teenagers in youth group pretty easily. (laughs) But fundamentally inside of me, I'm an encourager. So the things I'm going to say I want you to hear as an encouragement. There's a book. It's called Good to Great. Good organizations become great organizations, but in order that to occur, you have to, one of the things you have to do is face the brutal facts about where you are. You can't change if you kid yourself that it's all great. It's all good. So hear encouragement, okay? I just pulled one verse out of Acts, Acts 14.3. There's others. There's many others in Acts. In this particular one, it's talking about they were speak, Paul was speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Freely they had been given to, freely they were giving. Do we live that way? Do we understand the things of the kingdom in a way that we can freely give them out? That's not the way we live. We see neat miracles. We see lives changed. But we don't see it this way. I'm going to steal this line. There is a great movie documentary that Peter, wherever Peter is, put me onto this week. And it's called The Last Transformation. It is powerful. Reformation. The Last Reformation. <laughs> and, it's t- and it's tomorrow. <laughs> it's an inside joke. Man, I've been messing up my thoughts and my words recently. It's the last reformation. And in that, I'm going to borrow that Jesus left a powerful, anointed, effective church. And that church went to Greece and became a philosophy. And it went to Rome and became an institution. And it went to Europe and became a culture. And it came to America and became a business. So let's jump forward 1,500 years 
to the culture. It's a culture. And we've got Pope Leo X and we've got Luther. And the church has just exited a thousand years of dark ages where there's basically no light. And Pope Leo is the rich son of probably the richest, most powerful family in the world, the Medicis who ruled, Ven uh, ruled uh, Florence. And as a 13-year-old teenager, he gets a cardinalship bought for him because church and state power, you just, you just needed to be part of this. And he becomes pope for those few years that are listed in his picture. And during that few years, he partied like it was 1999, man. I mean, he was just, <laughs> he blew the whole church's wad. I mean, the entire thing, all the great art of the Reformation was purchased by this guy. Uh, and as a matter of fact, they ran out of money. And so he came up with this great new revenue idea called indulgences. If you're rich and you want to sin, send some money to Rome and we'll let you sin. And Luther just said, that's not right. And his response to what he was seeing in the church was the beginning of God forming again the church that he wanted, the Reformation. And he gave us saved by grace. You jump ahead a couple hundred years and you get to people like Jonathan Edwards. And he's the first great awakening. And what his message was, was piety, holiness. He preached to the church. It was a revival of the Protestant church that had been established over the last 200 years. And it was amazing. And then the next one, John Wesley was probably growing up and becoming a young man during that first great awakening. And he took it further and made the Methodist movement and the things he emphasized, amongst others, were the priesthood of believers, something we believe, right? The wor works of piety. Show me your faith by your works. And the supremacy of scripture. We're on board with all those things, aren't we? Then, the second great awakening in the seven, late, late, early 1800s, men like Charles Finney. This awakening was a revival outside the church. It was evangelism. The Baptist churches came out of this revival. Stories of coal miners being so moved, emotionally moved, that they would get white furrows down their cheeks from the tears washing away the coal dust. Powerful revival. And the writings of men and women like this led to... the Azusa Street Revival, the outpouring of, of, of Pentecost again. William Seymour on Azusa Street in L.A. From the Azusa Street Revival and Pentecost, we ended up with the faith movement. Men like Smith Wigglesworth and Amy Semple McPherson, a woman. Smith was the apostle of faith. Charles Price is up there as well. Pastor John, last week, I think, a couple weeks ago, talked about a book he wrote and asked us all to buy a copy and read it. That's who Charles Price is. He was at an Amy Semple McPherson conference. And he was a pastor of a huge church in the Sacramento area. He had had moments as a teenager and then as an adult where this, this, this revival would occur inside of him. 
and then he'd be redirected to more, a more liberal view of the gospel. So at this point in time, he's now pastoring an enormous church. He's very articulate, can tell stories, draws a huge crowd, builds this big church. It's got smoking booths down the side and a dance floor in the middle. He was a big fan of all the wonderful cutting-edge music and, and, and drama and literature, and he would talk about stupid things like that. And so he's already taken out an ad. I'm going to refute this idiot, Amy Semple McPherson, on Sunday. And he's at the conference just to collect info for the sermon. And God touches him, transforms him, brings him back to the right path. And he starts the full gospel ministry. The full gospel businessman came out of preaching the full gospel. God heals, saves, delivers. And from there we had the faith message and the faith movement, Kenneth Hagin, people like him. The charismatic revival came. And then we're in a church today, right? Pastor Dan and Claudia started this church. Pastor John's the pastor. But my question is this. Where are we? Where are we with respect to the understanding one more. Of these things that those revivalists revived, God revived these things with those people that we just talked about. Where are we with our understanding of these topics? This is the plot that I feel like I'm starting to realize I don't understand it. It's different than what I thought. What spiritual truths do we not understand rightly? Do we believe that grace is a license from God to do anything sin anyway, choose any behavior, and God will forgive us? Is that what we believe grace to be? Do we even know what holiness is other than a movement that had right intentions but got it wrong by focusing on external behaviors and was crushed under the weight of spiritual pride? Do we think being a priesthood of believers saved by grace means we don't have to do any works? Do we believe that we hire pastors to do evangelism? Do we believe in healing but walk in sickness? And think infirmity is God's way of perfecting us? Do we think prosperity is to be used on our desires? Do we believe that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps using our faith? Do we think that the Holy Spirit is li- the ho- do we think that Holy Spirit living is to make us feel good with Holy Spirit goosebumps and have neat spiritual experiences like some kind of Holy Spirit amusement park? Those reflect my thinking probably more than anybody else. Where are we? Church, it's time for us to wake up and recognize that we are at an inflection point. If we are willing to yield to God as a body of believers, we will step out into the last reformation. We'll participate in what God is doing, the glorious things he's doing all over the world. We can be part of what our Lord is doing. He is giving spiritual understanding of all these pieces that he previously revived to church bodies who will yield to what he is doing and are willing to make it about him and not about us. Grace is an expression of God's love where he allows us to die with Christ and live with Christ. We can experience the spiritual reality of this in baptism, not as a ceremony, but as a transformative experience where we literally die with Christ and live with him. It opens the door to putting on the new man. We're told to put on the new man. 
We need to understand what that means. We need to let it change us. Yielding to the new man brings about a character change that culminates in godly humility. Death to the pride of life. As we yield to the manifestation of the new man in our life, putting on Christ, we will begin manifesting true holiness, his character inside of us. We need to return to a true understanding of what holiness was and is. To understand we are a priesthood of believers, we need to understand Holy Spirit living, walking with God, communing with his spirit, hearing and seeing what he is doing, caring more about ministering what God wants done than what we, what we want. We need the faith of God to demonstrate his power and his kingdom, delivering people from the oppression of the enemy, healing their diseases, setting them free. We need to return to a yielding understanding of what he has called us to do. Prosperity is to be able to give in to every good work. When we have understanding of these things, we will carry the kingdom of God with a demonstration of his power as a witness of his death and resurrection into the world around us. We will be part of the last reformation. That's what I want to do. Where are we? The kingdom of God is at an inflection point, and we're at a Y in the road. We can choose to step into our calling, or we can be a club. God is calling us to step into the vision for revival in the River Valley from Prescott to Solon Springs. That's us. Pastor John has been talking about that for years. That's where we are, but we need to do it the right way. We need to do it his way. We're not the only church with this calling. There's no, no room for pride. We're, not, we're just part of what God's doing. We just need to do our part of what he's doing. We have been sent to this region to carry and demonstrate the good news of his kingdom. At one time, there were those who were sent to, do the, to revive the things of Acts. We called them apostles. Not apostles with capital A, the 11 or 12 chosen people, right, with titles. Those were the first ones. Since then, apostles only means sent one. That's all it means. We're sent to this region. We're all sent to this region. The time of churches revolving around the work of great leaders is over, where we go to a big meeting to watch somebody demonstrate the power of God. That, that age is past. That time has passed. I was once asked, don't you just want to hire a staff member to do a particular ministry in our church? I politely didn't respond, but my answer was no, I don't. This is the age of church bodies full of believers who do the work of the ministry. We are past the age of one person with big meetings. It is time for each one of us to understand who we are in Christ and carry the gospel into the world around us, the marketplace, our neighborhood, our churches, the people that we know, demonstrating his power and his will. Paul said, I didn't come to you with words of wisdom. I came to you with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. That's what Pastor John is right now. Apostle just means sent one. I got out of my order a little bit. Of course, there were 12 apostles with a capital A. They were selected and chosen by Jesus and sent into all the earth. They were unique in that they were the first sent ones. When a church is sent into a region, it is called an apostolic church. That is our calling, and we are to become a church full of sent ones. 
that will require understanding and training. Pastor John has it on his heart to build a wing on this church with classrooms. We need classrooms to train ourselves in proper understanding. And then when we go out into all the earth, we're going to find people. They will be drawn into the kingdom of God, and we're going to have to train them in how to be disciples of Jesus as well. What is on your heart to give towards the building fund? Pastor John, I know what God has asked me to give. I, don't, I want to be part of a body of believers who is fulfilling the mission that God has given them. The next step for us is building this training facility. What's on your heart to give? If we begin breaking ground in June, we can have classrooms by next fall. That's a year from now. We went to Financial Peace University about eight years ago. There was a lady in our class who had $87,000 worth of debt. Remember her? She paid it off in 18 months. That was one family who got very serious about their debt. A church this big, we can raise 185000 Now I think it's less than 184 as of today. We can do that. It's very doable. 6000 bucks a week. Pastor John has stepped out and he's stepped up. He's clear at the end of a limb, and he's kind of there alone. I didn't realize that I would be saying these things when we talked in August and how well it fits exactly with what you're doing. But I'm getting out there with you at the end of the limb. This is who we are. We want to support you. There are others in this congregation that God has called you to step up and help Pastor John with this vision. Let him know who you are. He should not be carrying this load alone. He's the leader. He's not the donkey. I want to close with prayer, and then we'll take an offering for the new building and the rest of the tithes and offerings that we give. But I want to encourage everyone to give with purpose. We are at a place in the road where we can just link up with our Lord and Savior and do what he's doing in this valley. And what's on Pastor John's heart is the next step is a training facility. Heavenly Father, we just give you so much thanks and praise. You are glorious. And you are revealing your glory in the earth. We want to be part of it, Father. We want to be part of what you are doing, advancing your kingdom for your purposes. We yield to what you are doing. Amen.